listening to Phenomenology Club Radio. Hello and thank you for listening to this audio podcast. I am Buttress, the host of Phenomenology Club, which is an interactive online community of artists and thinkers centered around this content that I create and curate online for us to talk about which is why both our tagline for Phenomenology Club and the subtitle for this discussion series is Talk About It. Most of these uploads are originally streamed live on our YouTube page. If you're interested in interacting with those as they happen live, please go subscribe and turn on the notifications at youtube.com slash phenomenologyclub. And in general, to learn more about our club, what we do, and how you can become a member for only $1 a month, please visit our website at www.phenomenology.club. Thank you for listening. Stay trippy. Hello, and welcome to this late night discussion, uh, (laughs) this late night Phenomenology Club talk about it discussion episode. I don't usually do discussions this late just because I'm so kind and gracious and I know a lot of people are sleeping especially on the east coast where I reside uh in New York also known as New Jersey um so so sorry about that but fuck it I have so many thoughts and I just really want to expel them in in some act of catharsis uh so that's what I'm about to do here tonight uh I said yesterday on the upload I did about naturalism that I've been having a difficult time in focusing on topics that I think are appropriate for this channel's discussion series because my mind has been elsewhere and where my mind has been I will tell you is on feminism (laughs) I just can't stop thinking about all of it especially because of just these insane political and philosophical conflicts that emerge in all of my various discussions with people that I know personally in real life and also people I encounter on the internet. I have never encountered such a topic of conversation as feminism where so much fucking conflict exists and as a woman uh you know of course I am interested in such matters but also as a person who likes to consider myself a critical thinker I mean it's almost kind of fun trying to analyze and dissect all of these various philosophical arguments and try to determine what the fucking problem is because as I'm sure many of you know there are many 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 um so I already did a an upload on this channel called observations crashing the feminist wave function uh which is my longest upload ever and you can listen to it on this channel if you would like I also put time codes if you watch on the YouTube uh or on the Spotify one I I I prefaced it with a little disclaimer about where you can skip to if you want to get to the heart of the conflict But in re-listening to that episode, because I am somebody who likes to uh, critique and evaluate my own arguments and see where some are weak, where some can be improved, where some should be removed entirely, um, 
that episode was supposed to be or formatted in such a way where we were doing phenomenological reductions uh, for the various waves of feminism. And for those of you who don't know, who who haven't listened to my What the Fuck is Phenomenology upload, I implore you to do that if you give a fuck about such things. The phenomenological reductions are part of Husserl, Edmund Husserl, the founder of Phenomenology's approach to doing phenomenology. And if you listen to that upload, you know that phenomenology is not a school of philosophy. It's a way to do it. And the way you do phenomenology, well, the ways you do phenomenology are numerous. But one of the ways you do phenomenology is by employing what Husserl called the epoche, which is a word that was employed heavily by the ancient Greek skeptics um, and essentially means suspension of judgment. The idea here is that you want to remove yourself to the best of your abilities to consider an object, a concept, and think to yourself all of the possible ways that you are experiencing it and also how you are defining it. Um, both on a fundamental level, uh, and also through our language, you know. So in this upload, this feminism upload I did, I went through the, the various waves of feminism and described each one and tried to do something like this, the epoche, and, and come to an agreement about whether or not we thought as a group these different waves of feminism serve the ultimate goals of feminism. But what I didn't do in that upload was discuss any of this from a perspective that could be considered subjective, which is kind of funny because... Uh, those of you who listen to the upload about phenomenology also know that phenomenology is rooted in a subjective mode. And contrary to popular opinion, it is really not about determining any sort of truths from the subjective mode necessarily or centering subjectivity as a thing to be our ultimate reference point for how we come to truths, but it simply works from the knowledge, a recognition of the fact that everything we experience is subjective. And as such, we cannot ignore this when trying to come to truths and trying to create language and schools of knowledge that help us navigate our external world and our phenomena of experiencing it. And phenomenology literally means the study of that which appears. It is an experiential study. And this becomes very relevant, and I probably should have commented at least, because it was a conscious decision not to get subjective in the feminist upload, but I should have commented on um, the fact that a consideration for how we subjectively interact with theories of feminism um, is very, very important, especially in understanding the conflicts, the many, many conflicts that exist in feminism in particular, and why there is just so much fucking disagreement, and that just can, <laughs> cannot be resolved. Um, specifically, our subjective experience 
experience of choice. Choice is a word, a concept that comes up continuously over and over again in all of these conflicts and philosophical arguments that we have about feminism in particular. This idea that women have agency as individuals and they have choice and choice is supposed to be the thing that we prioritize in our theories of feminism and such. And I've been asked many times on this channel to do a uh, discussion about free will because uh, anybody who's interested in philosophy, I'm sure, already knows uh, the one thing <laughs> it seems everybody wants to talk about whenever uh, the word philosophy is even mentioned is uh, free will. Oh, sorry. I didn't see the chat until just now. Hold on. Um... One sec, I'm going to refresh. Hope this doesn't fuck anything up. We good? Okay, I refresh. Now I see it. Thank you. Now I see all you people here. Hello. Hello. Thank you for being here. I'll, I'll look at the chat in just a second. I'm making a conscious decision to not do that because I get distracted. Don't distract me. <laughs> Um, so, so yes, like everybody knows who has ever probably demonstrated any interest in philosophy, the one thing it seems people want to talk about, or maybe the second most, uh, <laughs> the second biggest topic anyone wants to talk about, because the first is probably consciousness and theories of consciousness, and like you think artificial intelligence is like gonna take over the world and become sentient, whatever, which I'll, I'll get to you motherfuckers soon watch out but all anybody wants to talk about is free will everybody wants to ask buttress what do you think about free will eh, do you believe in free will eh, blah, blah, blah. and um you know i like to give people what they want especially anybody who is gracious enough to uh give me audience so i do plan on doing an actual free will episode maybe even a video because it is such such a highly requested topic um, but I don't want this discussion necessarily to be about free will and determinism and all this because I'm going to do that. But when I was thinking about um, making a f my free will video, which I'm sure will be a, be a hit, top 10 phenomenology club billboard hit, um, I was thinking that a great segue into discussions about free will is the famous trolley experiment um because of what i think it illuminates for us about this concept of choice and i do want to talk about this and then maybe i'll conclude not conclude but maybe i'll i'll bring it back to feminism i probably will i will i will i will <laughs> i want to keep this pretty short but i i think that this uh, trolley experiment is a great way for us to investigate this phenomena of choice. Um, and this is why it becomes relevant to this free will discussion. Um, so for those of you who listened to the upload yesterday, uh, which was titled, What is Natural? Um, we discussed this concept uh established by the word natural what does it mean 
And the conclusion that we came together as a group was that natural as a concept is ultimately defined in any given instance by its context, right? We decided together that the word natural in the most universalist sense, if we're considering the entire scope of the universe and everything, then the word natural almost appears to lose all meaning because nothing is unnatural in this most broad context, right? What could be considered unnatural if the entirety of everything, or at least everything we experience or can hope to experience, is rooted in our experience of our physical surroundings, in our experience of the natural world? Nothing could be considered unnatural, right? But we also determine that this word, this concept natural, still has some demonstrable value if we choose to define it by its context. And also, we came up with criteria for how we can use this word in a useful way. The criteria was also uh with a consideration, we would give a consideration of the statistical likelihood of a thing happening. I gave the example of a fully formed computer rising up out of the mud and how in this context, when we consider how likely, statistically likely it is that a fully formed computer could rise up out of the mud, it seems appropriate to call this phenomena unnatural. Even though, of course, like I just said, in the broadest context, even a thing as absurd as this could be considered natural. If it ever happened, it would have to be considered natural because... Nothing is unnatural if everything is rooted in physicality. And I think that this word choice, this concept established by the word choice, works in a very similar way. And this is part of why the debate about free will versus determinism is so fucking fun for philosophy 101 students to think about. Because a same principle is applied uh, when considering the arguments, basically, um, if everything, it, what what could be, if if everything, uh, <laughs> hold on, let me let me gather myself. Um, in the most universal sense of an idea like free will, free will is this idea that we have the agency, the freedom to choose, right? In the most universal sense of this word, it can be and is easily argued that we don't actually have free will because everything we do is reactionary and Perhaps I can choose to jump away from the train speeding towards me, right? But I had no choice in uh, the fact that a train was coming towards me. Was my impulse, my instinctual reaction to jump away actually free? Am I actually free when I get up and walk to the fridge? Was that actually a decision, a free decision? Or am I ultimately guided by this incredibly complex network of calls and effect that determines pretty much everything? 
everything I ever do. And in that sense, perhaps I don't really have free will. This is the argument that is made, you know, against free will. And I think that it's a totally compelling argument. And like I said, this is not my free will upload, so stay tuned for that. I'm not going to go into it. I'm just summarizing the 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 popular argument that we don't have free will and I I understand and I think it's a compelling argument this idea that everything we ever do every individual action is the sum of all other actions and reactions that led us up to this moment and in that sense in a universal the most broad context imaginable yes I do not have free will but we know that this question is so compelling to so many people because we experience in our processes of navigating this external world, we experience something that so distinctly, so strongly feels like we have a choice, right? I can rationalize that, yes, perhaps it is not a conscious decision or a free decision, rather, that I get up and walk to the fridge and get a fucking sandwich, right? But I can also rationalize that whatever I am experiencing feels very much like I am making a conscious decision and I'm choosing between unlike options, right? And this is why it's such a, a fun thing for people to argue about because whether or not free will exists, it is undoubtedly true that we experience things that feel like choice. So what is choice? Let's talk about it. I've pulled up the dictionary. Merriam-Webster, our often cited dictionary. Um, and I'm going to read to you uh, some of these definitions. Choice, a noun. Number one, the act of choosing. Number two, power of choosing. Uh, I'm going to skip number three. Four, a number and variety to choose among. Five, care in selecting. Now, what do all of these have in common? I know it's difficult to think about it because you're not looking at the page like I am. But the thing that they all have in common is that they are rooted in subjective experience. Choice is ultimately a thing that we experience. The act of choosing, says the dictionary. The power of choosing. And what are the limits of this experience? How rooted in a reality is it? Because we know that we come up with language and concepts to to the best of our abilities describe what we experience, right? But how how useful and how accurate of a reflective concept is a thing like choice in our understandings of this word and this concept. And I think looking at the trolley experiments offers us some great, great, great insight into this phenomena. Um, and we just had a big 
fight <laughs> not a fight we had a big discussion about this in phenomenology club that ended up going for four hours i recorded all of it and perhaps i will post some excerpts from it because it was a great discussion but it had it started with a consideration of this trolley experiment i made it pretty large in the thumbnail uh if you're by a computer please look at it with me now uh because i've posted or I've put in an image of the original trolley uh, picture, but then also the first variation on it. And I think that comparing and contrasting these two images is very, very illuminating when thinking about a concept like choice. And also, speaking of feminism and women and the trolley experiment, did you know that the trolley experiment was created by a woman? The artist is a woman. I don't know her name. Shit. Shit. I'm going to look it up because you know what? I can do that. I will tell you. You ready? Is she the one who drew it? Hold on. Artist. <laughs> Such a so, so classic, so iconic. Damn it, I don't have time for this. Look, I'm sorry. Philippa Ruth Foote, an English philosopher, she uh, was the person who introduced this modern form of the problem in 1967. I'm not sure if she's the artist. This is what I'm saying. The person who drew the the image uh, is an art is a is a woman. I believe. Anyway, let's keep going. So look at this first classic trolley experiment. Right? What is the dilemma? The dilemma is that we are given this image of a person who has found themselves in the unfortunate circumstance of being witness to an event that is about to be terrible. We have a trolley heading on the tracks towards these five bound, helpless people, all making very sad faces, right? And then we see that the trolley tracks deviate and go towards another track um, where there is a single person bound and helpless making a sad face. And then also making a sad face is our person, the hypothetical person we are supposed to be inserting ourselves into the perspective of standing there with this lever. Um, and they are, it is incumbent on them in this moment to make a choice. This is how it's presented to us. And what are the choices? Well, the first choice, obviously, is that they could refuse to interact with this at all, right? They could decide to abstain from doing anything and just witnessing whatever would have happened should they not interact, right? And if they don't interact, the trolley will come and it will destroy these five people on the tracks, right? Then what they could do is pull the lever, in which case the trolley will be redirected towards the single person on the track and kill them instead. And the ethical implications of this thought experiment are numerous because for one, um, and I think that this is a thing a lot of people don't necessarily think about. 
this image of a person with this lever, which is a very binary mechanism, right? It has one of two options, and we see in this image that there are one of two options, and the aesthetic of this presentation of a choice seems like this person must do something, right? They must pick the five people or the one person. But I think that uh, in talking about this, a lot of people don't really fully grasp, because I know I didn't when I first saw the experiment, they don't really fully grasp that if they do nothing, the five people will be killed, right? And the one person will be saved. And that person would have been absolutely fine if you never, never interacted with them at all or interacted with this lever at all you know so they were totally chilling they were not doomed to die until you showed up and started making a sad face holding the fucking lever like you had to do something i mean try to put yourself in the perspective of this single individual you are on some other train track you are totally fine you're totally chill brah you feel bad for the five people below you making the sad faces bound and helpless that the trolley is rapidly approaching but like dude whatever i didn't do this i didn't tie us up and put us here i'm just making a sad face on these fucking train tracks and then this fucking guy shows up this fucking asshole with the sad face he shows up and he's like oh shit what do i do what do i do like bitch don't do anything i'm fine you're gonna kill me the fuck uh but before i get more into that let's now look at this second variation please look at this the second variation with the fat man, uh, the fat man variation. In this second variation, I'll try to describe it for people who are only listening, but if you're, if you're on the YouTube page, please look at the thumbnail if you haven't seen this anyway. Now in this second variation of the trolley experiment, we see a trolley heading towards these five people on the train tracks bound. It looks like the same people in the first one. Can't confirm or deny that, but they look very similar. <laughs> trolley looks similar as well um the trolley is heading towards them and there are two people on a bridge one is this same person it's presumed from the first experiment with the lever this is presumed to be you you represent their perspective and what kind of a choice could be made here and they are standing next to a large obese man and presumably if you push this obese man, or this fat man, I don't know which is more appropriate to call him. If you push him onto the train tracks, the trolley tracks, his body, the mass of it, will halt the trolley and save the lives of these five people. Now, I want to ask you, do you feel as if there is great difficulty uh, in making a decision in either one of these let's ask first what do you all what would you all likely do or like to think that you would likely do in this first instance the classic incarnation of the trolley experiment the most uh widely familiar one what would you do would you do nothing and let the trolley kill these five people or would you pull the lever and kill the one person instead tell me
While I wait for that, I'm just looking at the chat. Hawk Hugo says that their premium just went away, so they can't listen on Spotify, presumably. i just like to say that I don't have a Spotify account. I downloaded the free app uh, on my phone, and I am able to listen to all of the Phenomenology Club uploads uh, with no problem. So even if you don't have a Spotify account, if you would like to listen to these on Spotify, uh you can listen to them in full for free on Spotify. I don't really know how this shit works, but I presume it's because Anchor, the service I upload my podcast through, uh, Anchor is a Spotify company. So I guess they just put all of them on the free version of Spotify. So there you go. All right, we're getting some answers rolling in about this trolley experiment. Alice has said... Alice would do nothing. So, Alice, you would let these five people die, yes? Cammie would pull the lever. Multiple people are saying now that they wouldn't pull the lever. Um, and that, I think, even though a lot of people will disagree, I think that that's a reasonable conclusion. Uh, because it does seem like you are committing a murder by interacting, right? But I also think that the longer you sit and spend time with this, um, the more possibilities emerge. I mean, I'm personally, I'm personally someone who leans ultimately towards this idea that I would pull the lever. I would pull the lever so that one person dies instead of five. And even though I acknowledge this inserts myself uh, into a position where I show more agency and choice than I feel comfortable with since my choice results in the death of an individual, I think I would ultimately feel it incumbent on myself to make a decision because I have the potential to save four lives, you know. In this instance, either five people are going to die or one people are going to die. And it seems, it presents to me like I do have some semblance of a choice to help. And I could save four people's lives if I pull this lever so I think that that is ultimately what I would do but then looking at the second trolley variation where the option is to either push this fat man instead in front of the trolley and halt its progress towards these five people or to do nothing at all I feel as if the difficulty in making a choice is so much more difficult and it's really hard to think about because when I think about it there is nothing fundamentally different between the first image and the second image in both instances I this presumed individual witnessing these events uh have an illusion of a choice to interact with this scene you know and I could either not interact at all and five people die or I can interact and save some lives by sacrificing the life of another individual. It's pretty much exactly the same. But the difficulty in feeling confidence about making a decision uh, greatly differs between the two images. Because in the first image, we have this lever, this thing that presents so strongly this aesthetic 
empathetic of a choice and of agency. What do levers exist to do? Levers basically exist to select between one of two options, right? This entire spectacle of having this individual here with a lever, with their hand on it, <laughs> going between one of two options it it seems like you're supposed to do something right it appears this way it's so aesthetic it's so aesthetic it makes you feel not only like you have a choice but it also makes you feel like there is a choice that must be made you person with the lever and the sad face must make a choice you got a lever in your hand levers exist for choice making right but then you look at the second option and the instead of a lever it's a fat guy shit do i push him in front of the trolley or do i not and if i don't want to but i concede i would pull the lever in the first image then why don't i want to push the fat man because the same exact thing is happening right i'm making an unfortunate decision i don't want to make but i am doing it with the purpose of saving lives so why do i feel so uncomfortable pushing this fat guy off the fucking train because the aesthetic, the optics, the experience of this choice is so distinctly different. And when we're talking about choice, choice is an entirely aesthetic, subjective experience. So it makes sense that it is so greatly, greatly transformed between these two images. What is choice if not simply a subjective experience, right? It's an, ex it's, it's an aesthetic because like we said earlier when we were thinking about these universalist conceptions of free will, I mean, does it even really exist or is it just this sort of conceptual thing that we use that describes how we feel, this feeling that we have choices between unlike options or events, right? And it's so greatly influenced by all the aesthetic variables that surround it. In this first one, it feels, it presents so much more like an actual choice. In the second one, I don't even feel as much that there is a choice. But there is, you know. There's a choice to interact or to not interact. To try to save lives or to try to not by sacrificing the life of another. Nothing is fundamentally different except the literal presentation. The phenomenal of this experience. Chris Marquez says, I'd convince the fat man to jump on his own accord, effectively transferring the choice from me to him. Wow, well, you must be a powerful speech maker, Chris. Um, because that trolley looks like it's, uh, I mean, I don't know how fast trolleys move, but I assume it's probably going pretty fast, right? Fast enough to kill these people. If it went super slow, it could probably just push them, uh, forever, right? <laughs> I'm sure it'd be painful, but would it crush them? I don't know. I guess it would. I don't know how physics works. It's heavy, right? Um. <laughs> but yeah, um, so I feel like... I feel like this becomes really, really important when thinking about things, like I said, that that got me even thinking down this trajectory 
when thinking about things like political movements, such as feminism, you know, this has become such a conflict in discussions about feminism, and especially in about things like sex work, which is the thing that I have been arguing with people about, <laughs> I mean, for a while, but, but today, especially this idea that people, that women have a choice to do a thing. Um, and because, and we should grant them this in this incarnation in thinking about this, the idea is that individuals should be granted some sort of agency. They should be granted a choice, but as we can see from this discussion, it's like, well, how could I grant somebody a choice, you know, or respect their choice? I mean, choice is just sort of this nebulous concept that isn't really even necessarily rooted in reality, right? It describes a subjective experience, the feeling that you have options, right? Um, and this is part of why we do things like establish democracy. Um, Democritus, the, the Greek philosopher from, from the fifth, fifth, fourth, uh, what is it? I think fourth century BC. Democritus is one of the earliest philosophers to even go on about free will, uh, and begin free will arguments. And, uh, he, he also, um, is clearly, Part of the inspiration for this word <laughs> democracy what is demo oops hold on oh shit i know i'm still alive but i i exited my my thing on accident hold on <laughs> Okay, I'm back. I mean, I don't think I left. Am I here? Can you hear me? Tell me. Tell me. Um, but what is the etymology of this word? Democracy, actually. I would like to look it up. Uh, does it come exactly from his name? Democracy! Um... But democracy, as we all know, is the form of government in which the people have the authority to choose their governing legislation. And this idea of choice is essential to uh, democracy, right? Oh, okay. Greek, demos, the people. Very interesting, very interesting. And and why in democracy is is this a thing? Why is democracy a thing a lot of people venerate? And even people who might not consider themselves like, you know, uh, Democrats still seem to value this idea that people should have a choice. Because when people are not given a choice, then all choices and all actions are basically mandated for us, right, by individuals. And individuals don't know how we feel, you know. They don't know how we feel about any given thing. So why should we legislate any sort of authority or at least in such a way where things like choice become so centralized and inaccessible to the rest of us, you know. We all have our own subjective experiences and interpretations of all these various things that present as having some feeling some 
oral or semblance of a choice, right? So if we delegate all of our choices to certain individuals, then we know that quickly our our desires will not be represented. So we come up with things like democracy, which are founded on these principles that the group needs to have a say, you know, and how well democracy actually achieves this, I think is totally debatable, especially when you consider that in democracy, it seems like um, marginalized voices quickly become suppressed. Because if you're doing things like taking majority votes, then how will any sort of minority uh, group ever be able to be represented? You know, if you only represent this portion of the population, or this viewpoint you know how can your desires and your choices ever actually be represented they're not right democracy functions in a way where the group uh takes precedent over the individual you know so i understand why there is resistance in things like political movements and social liberation movements why we need to also prioritize the voices of individuals question mark or marginalized groups i mean this is an interesting question right a minority within a larger group, let's say that we are trying to function within a mode of democracy, I think that it is totally reasonable to say that there, if there is um, a group that exists as a minority in this larger group, we need to take some sort of measure to make sure that they are at least being heard and given consideration, you know, and perhaps we'll do things like... Um, change what percentage their vote counts for you know this is sort of how states rights are supposed to work even though we all know it's fucking stupid because states are stupid but you know this idea that like kentucky and california both have equal representation or whatever the fuck which they shouldn't but you know what i mean like the, the it's it, in theory in theory it's an understandable concept in execution it's an absurd concept because what the fuck is kentucky what the fuck is california i mean these are just arbitrary borderlines that separate groups of people and people are supposed to be the thing being represented i am not fundamentally different as a new jerseyan than a kentuckian you know what i mean this is why we don't give a fuck about this shit but but i think in in other in other uh incarnations this becomes a totally a totally reasonable critique to speak of feminism feminism is a perfect example within feminism in america the mainstream feminism has always been led by white women you know because we are not only the majority in america but we also uh have have access to more resources, access to more wealth. We exist in positions of privilege over our black women in America, you know. And so a reasonable critique has arisen out of out of this reality that black women need to be equally represented in feminism, you know. So a, a thing like democracy or having some sort of democratic vote, it's not going to work really here because that's how it works naturally. And clearly, this is not sufficient, you know, because if we do things like take votes, then how will a minority group like black women, women ever be represented in a thing like feminism in America if they are the minority, you know, but they represent an actual group of people, right? They don't represent 
individual desires. Of course, this group, this group of represents individual desires. Every group represents individual desires. This is why we even care about things like democracy so that, you know, the group can come to a consensus based on the sum of our individual desires. But how can we even begin to try to conceptualize or integrate a theory of individuality into some sort of political movement? It just makes no fucking sense. Because what is politics? Politics speaks to group realities. Politics is not, uh, I don't know, philosophy. Philosophy works on a more individual level, right? Which I think is actually uh, not a great thing. Uh, and part of why I'm a phenomenologist, because I believe that philosophy needs to be a thing that everybody uses and that we integrate into things like politics in a more serious, definitive way. But um but how can we but but politics is not about individuals you can't have a movement like feminism that is like guided by a thing like subjective choice right how 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 i need to hear an argument for why i need to take a back seat to any individual person or in this instance i'm talking about i need to hear a compelling argument for why any one individual's woman woman's choice to participate in a thing that I find to be an overwhelmingly misogynistic and patriarchal as fuck institution, why should I center this individual perspective in feminism? Why? Because there's a group of people that say they they enjoy upholding this institution. What about that? Does that represent a minority group of people that needs to be considered? I mean, personally, I would say yes. And this is why I think that we do give credence to these kinds of arguments about sexual liberation and such in feminism. I, I think that if there is a large enough group of people and of women that express, no, I want to participate in this thing, you know, then they should be heard totally. But I still need to hear an argument for for why we should then center a political movement around a thing like sexual liberation, which can't even be demonstrated to be a feminist concept in and of itself. Right. Because what is feminism, if not the fight for women's rights? It's not the fight for sexual freedom. That's a totally different phenomena. Right. What do women and sexuality have to do with each other? Except that women are absolutely over-hypersexualized in our society. And we're also shamed for being too modest. I mean, I talked about this in my upload, you know. But what is... I need to... I, I don't understand what people think is the fundamental link between women and sexuality. Like, what is it? Hmm? Hmm? Are you telling me that I, as a woman, and like... I'm just doomed to always be inexorably linked to some conception of my sexual worth. Why? Where's the sexual liberation activist for men? You know, are women just so sexually oppressed? Where's the fucking male sexual liberationist? Men are definitely sexually broken. I would argue they're much more sexually broken than women. I mean, men need to fucking masturbate and to cut off vagina foots <laughs> and like watch the most absurd fucking shit on Pornhub just to bust a nut. I mean, that, that sounds like a disability. <laughs> in terms of sexual health that's totally a handicap like damn what's going on i think that we need to liberate men damn
<sighs> I'm gonna look at the chat. Chris Marquez says, pro-choice and pro-life are loaded terms. Pro-choice is just phrased to make abortion more palpable, and pro-life is meant to emphasize the death of the fetus. I agree with you, Chris. I think that this is um, a debate that has been completely sensationalized and romanticized much by its use of semantics, this abortion debate. Uh, with these terms that you just brought up, pro-choice and pro-life. I, I do think that they both seem a little bit absurd, you know. Of course, I am much more on the side of pro-choice, but I don't really even think I agree with the philosophical framing of of this necessarily. I mean, I do, I do, but I do think that it's sensationalized, you know. I mean, because, like, I'm somebody who believes, for example... Um, that abortion could absolutely be conceptualized as murder. I mean, what is murder? Murder is technically the unlawful killing of an individual, but we also use the word to describe things like murder and self-defense, right? Which is not necessarily unlawful. It's technically lawful if you can prove that you did it in self-defense. We still use this word murder, you know? So I, I have no personal hangups about calling a thing like abortion murder, you know? Sure, maybe it's murder. I don't, I don't care. I am technically killing a, a life that could have grown up and been this guy at the fucking trolley making a sad face like, damn. But uh, that doesn't mean then that because, sure, you could conceptualize it as murder and one incarnation means that, I sh that women shouldn't have the right to it. Like, you would have to convince me of why not. I have the right to murder in self-defense. I think I should also have the right to murder, quote-unquote, if you want to call it that, when it comes to matters of abortion. Because we know that if you are forced to become a mother, especially in our modern society, uh, which <laughs> is probably the best conditions we've come upon yet, but being forced to be a mother is like a, a terrible reality. If you don't want to be one and you become one anyway, that's that sucks. I shouldn't be forced to become one. It becomes a handicap in and of itself in many ways for many women, you know, and this is why we see women are kept in poverty when they're denied things like access to birth control, access to reproductive care, access to abortion, you know, it keeps women out of the workforce. It keeps women in poverty. It keeps women suffering from health problems i mean pregnancy takes an incredible toll on your body as does mo motherhood so uh yeah i would say that whether or not it's murder it's totally justified so i don't really like i guess in these discussions about like pro-choice and pro-life a lot of people on my side of the argument who are pro-abortion will say things like it's not a murder it's a fetus it's like we all know what they mean you're not really responding to what they're saying of course i don't agree with what they're saying either but we should just be upfront. like sure it's a murder guy fine i'm a murderer I had an abortion. I guess I'm a murderer, according to you. That's fine. I still believe it needs to be legal for all the reasons I just described and more. So you want to respond to that? Now you respond to that. I responded to you. I conceded it could be murder. Now you respond to me. Respond to what I just said. Thank you. Uh, Delilah. Well, I feel that you're, I, I'm not sure if you're speaking to me or if you're all fighting in the chat. 
<laughs> well, I feel that you're speaking about different types of minorities right now. Like, black women were born black. White women going into sex work is a choice. Uh, I agree with you. And I think that women should absolutely have the freedom to do whatever they please, you know. But what is the root of this actual disagreement, right? The root of the disagreement is that... If I say I believe women should have the freedom to do whatever the fuck they want, whether they want to go into sex work, whether they want to literally try to strip me of my voting rights as a woman, ban abortion, do whatever the fuck they want that I could consider the most anti-feminist thing in existence, they should even have the freedom to do these things. I want all women to be able to have the freedom to do whatever they want, whether or not I believe it serves their best interests or the best interests of women as a whole but my problem is that we've come into this mode where now if you want to criticize the overwhelmingly misogynistic and like I said in my upload I was a stripper and did other things for multiple years I'm not trying to hear from anybody that the men who purchase these sorts of services are not the most misogynistic men in on the entire face of the fucking planet they fucking hate women they talk to us like dogs in these institutions they say the most terrible things like the it's, it's a terrible, incredibly misogynistic institution. If I want to critique it or criticize it now in my interest as a feminism, which I think it should be as a feminist, which I think it should be in my interest as a feminist, I am now met with resistance where people are saying it is anti-feminist and I am called a bigot, essentially, a swerf, a sex worker, exclusionary, radical feminist. <laughs> Because I want to criticize the institution and it means that I am belittling the choice of women. And it's like, what? First of all, first of all, I think that it is rational to say, yes, clearly ingrained in my criticism has to be, it can totally be understood that ingrained in my criticism is a what you could call belittlement of the decision of individual women. I have to concede that. It's true. If I'm out here saying that this is a misogynistic institution, then it is implied that what I am saying belittles the choice, the, the freedom of choice that these women have to enter into these institutions willingly, right? I can't deny that. That's absolutely true. But... The, but I don't understand then how this criticism can emerge where people are saying that's anti-feminist. What is supposed to be anti-feminist about it? Is it the idea that sex work and women have to go together? Or is it the idea that I am belittling an individual woman's choice? It can't be that I'm belittling an individual woman's choice, right? Because if that were true, then wouldn't I also be shut down and called an anti-feminist if I did things like uh, said women should have the right to abortion? Some women believe we shouldn't have the right to abortion. That's their choice. Their choice is to actively campaign against abortion rights. And I believe they should have the freedom of that choice, right? So if I say that uh, it's fucked up that people are out here campaigning against abortion rights, does that also make me anti-feminist now? Because I belittled the choice ingrained in my argument is this belittlement of the choice of women who want abortion to be gone and outlawed. It can't be that, right? 
So what is the accusation? The accusation is that sex work and women go together. Sexuality and women go together. Women are implicitly sexual beings or something. And uh, we have to promote this because it's feminist. That's the actual insinuation. But how can that be true? Is this true? <laughs> Hector Rivera says, since you're reading comments, I'll reiterate this. What if Fat Man was on a sort of platform and you were able to pull a lever from a distance to drop Fat Man onto tracks as opposed to pushing Fat Man? <laughs> I think then, Hector, that it would present as more of a choice and people would have an easier time making a decision here. <laughs> Absolutely. I think that if uh, the fat man, if there was a lever involved, then it would take on more characteristics of the first trolley incarnation and that it would be easier. <laughs> Ramona says, isn't most work under capitalism effectively coercion anyway? How often is sex work a choice? An overwhelmingly large amount of trans women are sex workers because of workplace discrimination. Yeah, Ramona, that's absolutely true. I mean, and that's another thing that I think gets lost in these arguments. This idea that, okay, we definitely have a sizable amount of uh, people that interact in these institutions willingly. They choose to be there. That's absolutely true. But there's also a huge amount of people that are forced into it unwillingly, whether in explicit ways or through coercion, like you said, because their life circumstances, uh, whether due to discrimination, maybe lack of education, lack of resources there's all sorts of reasons people get essentially shepherded into these different sorts of institutions you know and I think that they are the people whose voices should really be the most centered in these arguments it's absolutely wonderful that so many women exist in such a place of incredible privilege where they have the right to make such choices as to whether or not they would like to be sex workers that is so wonderful. I am so happy for them. But as far as I can see, these are not the women whose voices need to be centered then in a thing like feminism. To me, it seems like you've already reached a favorable set of conditions, right? You exist now in this reality where you have the freedom, the privilege of a choice. You're taken care of. We don't need to worry about you. We should be worrying about the people who don't want to be here. The people who don't want to see all this shit too. Because this is absolutely true and something I talked about in the upload as well. I mean, this shit is just misogynistic propaganda. That's how it functions. I don't give a fuck. I don't give a fuck if I sound crazy. Call me Alex Jones, bitch. I'm the feminist Alex Jones. The frogs are gay. The frogs are turning into women. I don't care. Fuck you. I'm over it. Mitchell Park says, couldn't you say we're all sexual beings? Absolutely. And this is why I don't buy this stupid fucking narrative and I don't give a fuck that women just live. Oh, we're, we're so sexually. We're, isn't it so convenient? Isn't it so convenient that men and women alike just love this narrative that women have just been so sexually oppressed. We haven't been allowed to explore our sexuality. And now it's feminist to encourage women to explore their sexuality. Let's explore it together. I'll pay you $50 to explore it for me live on Snapchat. Like, 
give me a fucking break. Like, why don't you explore your fucking sexuality? You're sexually broken just as much as the rest of us, motherfucker. Why is it women that need to explore and become free and bleh? What about you? Huh? What about everybody? Why is this a woman's thing? The fuck? We're all sexually broken. The fuck? And we're all... And, and, and maybe women wouldn't uh, be sexually oppressed and need to explore their sexuality if it wasn't true that uh, we're just preyed upon from every fucking angle, you know? Like, women aren't just... Their sexuality isn't oppressed or suppressed because, uh, because uh, we just felt like it. <laughs> Because we believed, uh, you know, that uh, your titties, titties are magic. We should all cover them up. No, we fucking had to cover up to hide from fucking the shit. <laughs> uh, I'm over it. All right. Um, it's been like an hour. I hope that this has been illuminating. I, I'm just I just cast all caution to the wind. I wanted to to try to keep it together. But you know what? Like, I'm just like, I'm just over it. I'm over it. I'm really over it. I just... I just can't. I can't. But, you know what? Like I said, this will not become a feminist channel. And any time that I do want to go on about my feminist bullshit, I will always make sure to have some sort of philosophical framing like I hope I have provided for you here tonight. And I hope everybody stays tuned for my ultimate free will versus determinism extravaganza <laughs> upload which will happen eventually um and what was i gonna say oh yeah just one more shameless promotion before i go we're meeting sunday to discuss the hegel reading it is 30 pages long i promoted it yesterday on the upload uh but if you're listening to this and you don't know we have a reading series in phenomenology club we are resuming sunday after being away for a while Reading our Hegel text, you have what? What's today? Monday. No. Today, Monday? Tuesday now. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. You have five days to read 30 pages. That's six pages a day. So you want to join our reading club, get it into the Patreon. It's only $1. Patreon.com slash Phenomenology Club. And you will have access to this PDF I have provided, as I always provide, because we don't have to spend any money here. Um, this text... Uh, the, the introduction and first two parts of section A called Consciousness in Hegel's seminal work of philosophy, The Phenomenology of Spirit. Uh, anyway, thank you everybody for listening. Um, and I love you all. And uh, have a great fucking day. <laughs>